0: Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University and we're glad to have you with us today. We are coming from the studio this week, so a big change getting back into the studio and being able to record from here and do our interviews. So we want to uh, uh, continue that as we see things improving, at least in terms of infection rates and the vaccinations and the the pandemic as it is changing, and we'll get into more of that in the weeks ahead as we analyze the politics and the issues around that, and especially the role of government. But we're here at the studio at, at KTRL 90.5 FM, and that's where you can hear us each week, right here on Sundays at 12 noon. And, of course, uh, available after the show on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. So we're glad you're here with us this week. And it's just me in the chair. I don't have an interview this week, but we've got a lot of issues and things to cover. Uh, We are going to look back at the local elections that happened around the state earlier in the month. We're also going to revisit the idea of secession uh, because there was a very interesting article that looked at it from an economic perspective, and we want to bring that back into the picture And talking about Texas and, and, and looking at it across the United States. It's a topic that comes up regularly, but it's also one that uh, most people dismiss and uh, saying, well, we're the United States of America, this won't happen, but in Texas, it's still a, a, a vestige there within our political culture of Texas being an independent republic. And so anytime secession is brought into the news or becomes a topic of discussion, uh, ears perk up. Uh, The other topics that we want to look at today is the uh, ouster of Liz Cheney uh, from the Republican conference chair in the House and we'll talk about the politics of some of that and a little insight into party politics and how that works and how this uh, issue and her ouster illustrate some of the political challenges that go on within political parties, especially now as we look to the 2022 elections and, of course, Republican efforts to try to take back the House of Representatives and, and possibly the Senate. And we'll wrap up the show today talking about health insurance in Texas and looking at why or what are some of the issues around this in terms of why the Texas legislature uh, really didn't address this uh, during the session as it wraps up. Uh, could happen here in the last uh, few weeks, but uh, it's not very likely. And what are some of the challenges there in a state that has the largest percentage of uninsured people uh, in the country? So glad you're with us today for a really packed show looking at a number of different issues on the state, local, and national level. So let's start out with local elections that happened on May 1st. We look back just here a few weeks, and we had elections going on all across the state, uh, some to replace people who were in the the House of Representatives. That one was District 6 is the closest one to us, uh, where you had an election Uh, and then most of it was city elections, city mayors, city councils, school districts, and of course bond elections. And of course we'll get to our election here in Stephenville as a part of this as well where uh, there was a special bond election on five different propositions, uh, all of which didn't pass. And so getting into the uh, aspects of that and the challenges with that, as well as the politics, uh, we'll we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But as we look across the state, I think one of the th- interesting things that we see, and at least the data that we have before us now, and of course more of this will be coming in in the weeks and months ahead, and it will be it will be able to get a, a better picture of what happened with this election. But uh, if you put aside all the uh, elections for office mayor, uh, city council, school districts, and so forth, and look at uh, bond elections or proposition elections that were going on around the state, uh, you see some interesting things. Uh, So one of the things I did was look at, at least in the North Texas region, North and Central Texas, look at bond elections. And it was really interesting to see how in larger communities like Irving, Richardson, Plano, a lot of the growing communities in the metropolitan areas, that the majority of their propositions that involved raising additional funding for community uh, improvements for school districts, they passed. Uh, And they passed by, uh, uh, in most cases, by good margins. Uh, It just wasn't even a a question of whether uh, it it really wasn't close in, in many of these elections. But when you look at uh, some of the rural areas of the state, some of the smaller communities, some that are not growing uh, as rapidly, uh, you see a different story. And of course, that's what happened here in Stephenville: is that all of the propositions uh, did not pass. So it's an interesting contrast here, and it's something that we should be looking at, especially in a state like Texas, where these elections um, and these votes on propositions and and community uh, elements of community services. Uh, especially schools where you have growing populations and needing to provide this service. And of course, we saw bond elections in the past related to the schools uh, have passed here in Stephenville, but the propositions that were before us uh, were ones that were more about community improvements uh, and raising the resources needed uh, to address some of those uh, issues. So one thing you have to look at it in terms of where, where the focus is, but in many of these larger communities, and this is kind of interesting because the property tax rates uh, and property values are higher uh, in many of these communities, especially those suburban or what used to be suburban communities in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I think that's one facet of it is to the percentage of how it impacts property taxes, where you may already have higher property tax rates. And so that percentage was not as significant. Whereas here in Stephenville, you saw many people Uh, or people receive their property tax statements in advance of the election and that cost to the individual and how well they were informed of that or not uh, could have been a critical issue. Of course, one of the key issues in all of these elections, and this happens and you see this, whether the city is large or small, is turnout. These uh, local elections uh, because of when they're held, because they're not tied to a broader election that's going on in the state or across the nation, uh, they just don't have the turnout uh, that you would see in like what we saw last November in the presidential election. So it's, it's very challenging and it really is dependent on people uh, turning out for these elections in order uh, to, to vote. Uh, especially for those that are trying to get things passed or, as we saw in the Stephenville election, uh, that uh, some of these were very, very close and and some were not. Uh, So there's a couple of factors that I wanted to look at just in my gleaning of the initial data that's out there uh, on these special elections that were going on or these uh, uh, elections to raise money. Uh, for community improvements or even to change government. There was one uh, proposition that was on the ballot in Austin about shifting from a weak mayor system with a city manager and it was the proposition was to do away with the city manager and of course move to a strong mayor system. and that was actually voted down. And so here is another example of something that is actually expanding the power of government or the power of the executive. Uh, in local government uh, that was not passed uh, in one of these elections. So we'll be distilling more of that information. It's very interesting to see in terms of local politics and the impact on communities in a state like Texas that is growing, that has a growing economic base in its metropolitan areas, uh, that is uh, uh, seeing challenges in addressing that growth and, and, of course, quality of life issues as well. Uh, one of those uh, or let's look here locally I think one of the things that we want to look at uh, are these different propositions and, and really what happened with them uh, so there were five propositions on the ballot uh, proposition, uh, proposition a uh, was uh, the uh, 8 million to design, construct and equip a combined use facility to house a library, senior citizen center and a recreation center uh, that proposition, Uh, Did not pass, but it was very close—a four eight hundred against eight sixty eight. The second proposition was for public improvements in the historic downtown uh, area, uh, which uh, that one uh, is almost a two to one. It was four six thirteen against one thousand and fifty four. Proposition C was two hundred sixteen million for improvements to Belknap Street from the Fort Worth and Western Railroad to Mason Street. That proposition, uh, also almost a 2-to-1, 644-4 against 1023. And Proposition D, uh, which was focused on uh, improvements to 1st, 2nd, 5th, 6th Cage and Swan Streets, again, uh, failed uh, by a similar margin as the others, and then the final one, uh, two, two million for the extension of the Bosky River Trail. So the only one that was really really close was the first one, in terms of the combined use center. And when you looked at all of this, of course, the data or the information was that was provided uh, was that the propositions together, in terms of home valuation. Uh, would add a total of $1.01 per 1,000 valuation. So if you had a home valued at about 250000 it would be an additional $253 a year uh, in, in property taxes. Uh, so there were different factors here, I think, in, in some of the reasons. I've tr- reached out to some Uh, city leaders, community leaders, to ask for interviews on this, and hopefully we'll get that in the near future to kind of look at the way forward. I'm not so much about dwelling on the election and its outcome as how is it possible to address some of these uh, issues. Are there grants? Uh, Could the federal infrastructure plan, if that's passed through Congress, provide resources to address some of these things? Uh, But I think what I see in looking at the data from this local election here and other small communities, as well as looking back at elections that followed the Great Recession almost a decade ago where you had, or over a decade ago, where you had many communities that even turned down school bond elections in raising funding uh, for school facilities because of the economy in the state and the concerns about cost. Uh, There are some related issues here as well. And what we see, I think, are some of the differences between rural and urban Texas, especially urban Texas that is growing very rapidly and having to address some of these issues in order to keep pace with that growth. In rural Texas, while in some areas like Stephenville and the communities between here and the Metroplex, you do see uh, some growth, uh, the further you get away from those urban areas, uh, the more more challenging it is uh, in, in looking at raising those resources to do specific kinds of improvements and whether communities as a whole are on board or engaged uh, with those, uh, uh, those areas and those issues. I think another question here or another concern that came up is certainly the impact on property taxes. It didn't help that residents of the community receive their property tax statements in advance of the election, but on the other hand, you know they're looking at it in a relative way. This is the impact on my taxes that I pay because I live here. You compare property taxes here to a property going further east and north and Granbury and moving on up into the Metroplex, or you look down to the south and southeast, Austin and so on. You see people paying uh, much higher uh, property taxes, property values being much higher, and, and so people are, are not looking at that. They're not looking at it comparatively uh, to say, oh, well, look at all of what other people are paying in order to have whatever community services or whatever that's funding in terms of uh, needs within that community uh, it, it's looked at relative. That's, that's another $200 a year. That's another $300 a year. And, of course, we are in a political culture in this state where uh, it, it, there is an emphasis on low taxes, and that the vestiges of that, the strength of that, I would say, is in uh, many of the rural areas of our state where you have people who are not wanting to, to give up more of their resources uh, in order to provide a more public, Uh, type uh, uh, services. The other is economic growth, Uh, the focus here on how do these things contribute to economic growth. And in looking at some of the material here related to these propositions, of course, the the focus is on making improvements to the community, to the resources in the community in order to attract more people, more businesses, uh, to, to see that the community is kind of on this this growth pattern here uh, and is, is welcoming uh, more uh, economic uh, investment and wanting to bring more people here, especially in terms of tourism and other areas that kind of drive the local economy and drive uh, uh, investment and, and growth as well. And so that is, is not always a priority for everyone. And I think that's an aspect of this that we do have to consider that's very different from a metropolitan area where it is about growing that, constantly growing that economic base. And, and I don't say that to say that people are against that. I think that they see that there is already th- things that are happening in this community, things being built, uh, new stores coming in, uh, new restaurants, and so on, and, and they they may be more measured in, under, in, in engaging with that. How, how fast do you want to grow? How uh, quickly do you want the, the next level that will bring in these particular restaurants or these particular box stores and, and so forth? Uh, timing is another part of it. Of course, turnout, uh, the, the property tax statements going out, uh, publicity about the propositions, Uh, All of these things are factors that played into this and make it very challenging in in communities like Stephenville and others that are not quite as connected to metropolitan areas uh, but are experiencing some growth and some uh, economic uh, investment that makes city uh, uh, decision makers look at the type of things that would help to improve uh, the community and make it a more attractive place for businesses and for uh, residents uh, to, to land. So we will see in the weeks and months ahead what options the, the community may have to address some of these issues. Uh, one of the challenges with this could most likely be the number of propositions as well. Uh, we saw that four of them were voted down by a significant uh, number of votes, and that in and of itself could say that this may have been too much at one time. That, uh, yes, while it was very aggressive, uh, maybe the community itself is not quite ready for it. And then also, there's a strategy to the way these things are approached, especially when you're talking about elections and government and taxes and raising resources, and that is public relations information, getting it out. Uh, engaging people and asking them to be supportive, making them aware of it so that they can uh, offer their vote if they are either for or against. So interesting times uh, for communities like Stephenville and others as well. And as we have more data coming in from the elections on May 1st, uh, we will uh, look at this and and, and kind of look at the state of local politics uh, in Texas Uh, As we move forward and as we come post-pandemic, as we see uh, where we land in terms of federal infrastructure, uh, resources, uh, state budget, there's just so many factors in the mix right now that are going to have an impact on local communities and local government uh, throughout the state. So I want to turn now to uh, this topic of secession, which we've covered on the show before. And it's not one that I just say, oh, I've got to come back to this every now and then. But when a new article or new material that engages with this topic comes up, uh, I think it's important that we, we look at it, especially this one, because it talks about secession from the standpoint of looking at the economic advantages or disadvantages to the nation, uh, as a whole, uh, in this kind of partisan political climate that that we are in. Now, just to go back and give you a little background here in talking about secession, its roots are really in uh, the popular vote of the people of Texas in 1861 uh, to leave the Union and join the Confederate States of America. Texas followed other southern states in seceding, Uh, Because of primarily the vital role of slavery in Texas and its economy, uh, as well as concerns about moves on the national level toward racial equality uh, for blacks. So while the majority of voters uh, approved uh, in this opposition uh, of secession, opposition was was very visible uh, from the beginning. uh, But, uh, of course, the Civil War decided it, Uh, the outcome of the war and then the Supreme Court's decision in Texas v. White of 1869, uh, nullified secession and deemed it illegal under the U.S. Constitution. But this idea continues; it persists in Texas political culture uh, because of the, the there are efforts of some extreme political groups uh, that are this is just their agenda and they want that to see it happen. Uh, but there are others that are it, it's it's in reaction to. Uh, this uh, engagement and, and give and take and challenges between the U.S. federal government uh, and and the state. And, of course, we saw in this 87th legislature very early on in the session, uh, Representative Kyle Biederman of Fredericksburg filed a bill that proposed a referendum to the people of Texas, quote, on the question of whether the state should leave the United States of America and establish an independent uh, republic. So where I want to come back to this, uh, and, and not to, to belabor some of the things that we've talked about before, uh, there was a very interesting article uh, that was posted on Michael Smirkonish's website. It's smirkanish.com. He is a radio host uh, commentator uh, that focuses on uh, uh, getting people information uh, that uh, help them to think about critical issues uh, but he also has a forum there in which people can post articles, and this one was written by David Paul, and the title is, If Texas Wants to Secede, No One Should Stand in Its Way. And he Reflects on comments by Alan West, who was elected chairman of the Texas Republican Party this past summer. Uh, if you if you recall, or you may may not, if you've listened to the show, but we had the previous Republican chair, uh, Republican Party chair on the on the show early in the summer, James Dickey, uh, before the convention, and he uh, was uh, not uh, reappointed or reelected as the chairman. But Alan West, a very controversial figure in politics, and In the Republican Party, but also someone who has risen to leadership uh, in uh, 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 other. He was served in Congress from Florida, and then, of course, came to Texas and was elected as the chairman. And what Paul is saying in this article is that claims by Alan West like this that Texas is secede, and by others, uh, should not be dismissed out of hand. Uh, in fact, here's what he says. While we can hope that the pendulum will swing back and that our politics will return to some semblance of normalcy in the near future, that may well not happen. If one major political party has determined that accepting the results of elections is too heavy a burden to bear, then that political party has abdicated its most essential responsibility to the nation. If a majority of the of the supporters of that party and a sizable minority of the nation have similarly decided that they are only willing to participate in a game that is rigged to their advantage, then that is a reality that should be taken seriously. So he's he's kind of questioning here, where are we going with this? Can we can we get back to a point where uh, – and, and we, we were there with this last election in that people, while they in, – in, in word and in focus – did not accept the outcome. They really did because they didn't revolt. They didn't rise up, you know, against and say, OK, well, hey, we're not we're not going to accept this. You you see the majority of people uh, by far across the nation accepted the result of the election and we've moved forward, uh, even though they are claiming that, yes, this was rigged. There was something wrong here. How long can we maintain that with with and still maintain the stability of our country and our society as a whole. So he's making a, a very legitimate point, or asking a question here that says, "What what do we do about this? I mean, can you can you maintain a level of unity while you have people who are going to doubt the process and the outcomes to to this extent? And what we've seen uh, based on this last election?" Uh, So what he brings up then is looking at the economic advantages or disadvantages to the rest of the country, Uh, and part of this focuses on uh, federal income tax, uh, which prior to the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which instituted that federal income tax, the uh, uh, tax that was levied on the states or what the states agreed to provide by the Constitution was based on, uh, was per capita. Uh, so it was a, a, an equitable system that taxed states or asked for resources to fund federal government based on the number of people living in the state. Uh, that all changed in, with the 16th Amendment and the creation of a federal uh, income tax. Uh, so that there is a lot of disparity here now, and actually blue states uh, contribute more in resources to the federal government uh, than per capita, than red states do, and so he points this out in the article. What he he looks at this and he says a ranking of states by median household income illustrates the alignment of wealth and politics. Among the twenty states with the lowest levels of household income, New Mexico is the only outlier blue state. All the rest are red states, at least in terms of the of the last election. At the other end of the income spectrum. Alaska, Utah, and North Dakota are the only red states among the 20 wealthiest states. The middle 10 states on the list split 50-50 and notably include seven states that turned out to be pivotal in the 2020 election, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Texas. So he looks at this then in terms of the numbers, the cost, what are people paying, what are states Contributing per capita uh, in terms of federal income tax. And that ranges from the highest in Massachusetts at $16,095 per capita per year to a low of $3,650 in West Virginia. Uh, So it says that the average household in Massachusetts paid more than four times as much in federal income taxes as its West Virginia counterpart. In total, 13 states and the District of Columbia. From the Northeast, Midwest, and West Coast, overwhelmingly blue states, represented by 23 Democrat senators and three Republican senators, paid substantially more than the average in federal income taxes, while 34 overwhelmingly red states paid less. So he brings this to the... Not to say, OK, well, yeah, secession is going to happen because of this, but he's he's making a point here to say that there is an economic aspect to this as well uh, in that the there's the disproportionate sharing of the federal tax burden, which is not what the framers of the Constitution had in mind. As I had said, the Constitution gave states the power to levy income taxes and required that funding from the states to support the federal government be provided on a per capita basis. So, again, that all changed with the 16th Amendment, federal income tax, and now you have examples like this. So, he looks at New York. In 2019, taxpayers in the state of New York paid $258 billion in federal personal income tax, an amount that was $66 billion higher than it would have been had New York contributed on a per capita basis, what the average state contributed. So you look at that and you, and you can say, OK, you can make a, an economic case here uh, in terms that, that might support saying, OK, look, you states that are much more are, are not as contributing, contributing to your, your share per capita. Uh, yes, let's let you go. Uh, Let go on your own because uh, that would actually benefit those states uh, who are not uh, who are carrying the higher burden, a disproportional burden. So I think it's a it's a very interesting analysis. It's another aspect of this that uh, is interesting to throw into the mix, into the dialogue, uh, because you you have a lot of Republicans and, and red state residents who would advocate for a proportional, more proportional tax system, of course, trying to bring the, that tax burden down of, uh, uh, as well. But right now, we don't have it. And of course, the disproportional part of it is being paid uh, by those blue states, and it is not based on the, on the per capita uh, element of it. So one of the things he says here, just to kind of conclude this too, While red state secession could be a boon to Democrats, consider all that money that blue states are now shipping off to red states, and the ease with which Democrats could control Congress and the Electoral College if Texas and a handful of other states were to exit, it would offer little but temporary respite from the problems of cultural and political alienation that researchers observe among Republicans." Secession would not insulate Republicans from the long-term demographic trends that are at the root of their problems. Republican leaders of an independent Texas, for example, would still have to confront the growing political power of urban and suburban communities that already threaten Republican hegemony in the state. So... Again, just some interesting thing to think about to, uh, uh, to, to add into this mix of discussion about secession when we look at the proportional or disproportional sharing of the federal uh, tax burden uh, and how that might play into uh, the benefit of some states over against the others. Not that, that we would see this would happen. In fact, I think this makes uh, the issue much more complicated uh, because you're going to have red states that would react and say, well, the tax burden's too high to begin with anyway. Um, but not that they would be willing to to tr- to try to do something that would be of benefit. That would be the primary reason why they would secede is to benefit blue states. Uh, the The focus there would be to uh, be out from under federal control and to be able to determine uh, more of their own you know policies and, uh, taxes and how they use the resources and so forth, uh, but it is it makes for interesting discussion and and for thought because it's an, a way of looking at secession uh, that I had not seen before and I wanted to bring it to your attention. I've posted this article on our Facebook page that's on Politics with Eric Morrow, where we post uh, related articles each week uh, to the stories that we discuss uh, on the show. And, of course, if you missed any part of this first half of the show, you can listen to it on SoundCloud after the show airs and, of course, download where you get your podcast. We're going to take a quick break from On Politics. And when we come back, we'll talk about politics in the Republican Party with the ouster of Liz Cheney as Republican conference chair. We'll be right back. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. I'm Rissa. I'm Taylor. And we are the The music Music Business Babes. Music Business Babes is a music-based bi-weekly podcast where we answer tough industry-related questions, discuss updates in the industry, provide insight from our own personal experiences, and share fun stories along the way. You can catch the show by searching for Music Business Babes or Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow and we're glad you're joining us today. In the first half of the show, uh, we talked about a couple of issues. One was local elections around the state focusing on the proposition election here in Stephenville and kind of comparing that with what happened in other communities, especially in urban, more urban areas. And then we also talked a little more about secession, which uh, you may uh, be tired of hearing a little about on this show. We cover it from time to time as new topics come up. But a very interesting article by David Paul that is posted on our Facebook page. Please go and look at that and look at his approach in talking about this kind of interesting topic that perpetuates itself, uh, persists in Texas political culture. uh, As we saw uh, a bill filed for a referendum Early in this 87th legislative session, that wanted to put it before the people to decide whether Texas stays uh, with the United States or not. So, anyway, interesting conversation. Whether it materializes and or or not, uh, you know, likelihood is is not uh, in this very complex uh, time that we live in. And. The intertwining of, of state and federal government, as we see, uh, but it's always an interesting topic uh, in Texas. So in the second half of the show, uh, we turn to discussing the ouster of Liz Cheney as the Republican Conference chair. Liz Cheney elected in 2016 from the state of Wyoming. Uh, as a representative in the U.S. House of Representatives. And of course, this past week uh, was ousted as being the third uh, in line, or at least the third um, in terms of power of Republicans in the House of Representatives. Of course, they're in the minority uh, as of this uh, past election. And uh, a few previous elections as well, but uh, it's very interesting to, to look at the dynamics that are go- going on and, and what go on in terms of party politics. And of course, the focus on Liz Cheney had been there for, for quite a while because of her criticism of President Trump and then her more uh, specific and very uh, pointed uh, comments in related to the events of January 6th uh, and, and calling for Trump to be impeached uh, and her continual Uh, focus on and and things that she said in this leadership role of preventing President Trump from uh, seeking the White House again or being in the White House again. Uh, So what happened here is this created over time. Uh, a lot of tension within the Republican Party and the Republican Party leadership. And, of course, if you're the conference chair, this is a very significant position in the Republican Party. It's where uh, future speakers, uh, uh, certainly leadership can come from. Uh, more higher leadership, uh, it's a very prominent position that gets a lot of media attention. When that person speaks, uh, media are, are there and they're engaging with it because it is speaking uh, on behalf of the majority of people in that party in uh, the House of Representatives. And so she began to receive more and more focus and concern uh, by the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, and by others Uh, in the Republican Party because of these comments that she has made about President Trump and because of her very open statements that the uh, election was legitimate, that even those that who did not uh, ratify the election in uh, uh, back in, in, in January with Congress should not be disqualified from running for the White House. Uh, so she's had some very specific things that he, she has said that have not been in line with a good number of members of her party. And so this has had continued to build over the months and the weeks, of course, starting last year, going through the events of January 6th and following, uh, to the point uh, that uh, she was uh, removed from that position uh, this past week. Now, When we look at this internally within a political party, uh, this was a very challenging position for Liz Cheney, who wanted to speak her mind and her position on this, uh, but she was in a position of leadership that really is expected to be in sync with the other leaders. Uh, That's why people are put in these positions. That's why people... Are, are, are chosen to, to be in the party leadership within the chamber and within Congress is because they are in sync with the other leadership. They're able to, to collaborate and work with them and, of course, make sure that the messaging that's coming out of the party, uh, especially if you're in the minority, is uh, uh, offering unity uh, and a unified message and a focus. And so this is what partisan politics, this is what the Trump era. This is what the past election. This is what all of these factors have have created. Is this level of tension and this this engagement with these particular issues that have made it very challenging among leaders uh, within political parties. You see some of it among the Democrats as well, although the the Democrats have a, a a much broader level of diversity and challenges at times in navigating that amount of diversity, it's there within the Republican Party as well. And this event really highlights that. Now, Liz Cheney and those that agree with her within the Republican Party in the House of Representatives may be a very small minority, but they're, they're still there. The challenge is that because of the turnout, because of the numbers of people that voted for Donald Trump and the support that he has across the country, it makes it a very dangerous political environment for those that want to push against this because remember, as we've said on this show in previous episodes, that the focus now is on 2022. It's on winning back part or all of Congress. The focus is on 2024, winning back the White House. And so the unity and consensus and so forth seems to be around uh, not, not a rejection of Donald Trump, uh, but embracing him in a, in a particular way um, and that that not everyone's in agreement on that and that's going to determine how much unity there is going forward within the Republican Party. But for now the at least with the leadership there seems to be uh, a, a very much an engagement with uh, continuing to support Donald Trump supporting the message that he had about the 2020 election. Uh, and to seeing what the possibilities, how things develop, at least in the next uh, 18 months toward the 2022 election and then, of course, toward the 2024 election. So this move and, it'll, of course, it'll be played. The politics will be played on both sides where. Democrats will accuse Republicans of not having a broad enough tent and uh, of being in line with Trump. They want to use that to their advantage in the in the next election cycle. They want to hold on to those voters that, that fled from the Republican Party and uh, supported uh, Dem- Democrats, specifically uh, uh, voting for Joe Biden for president. They, they know how critical that is to maintain that majority in Congress, as well as to uh look to the 2024 election and any aspirations that Democratic candidates have. Uh, so th- this is going to be in the political arena for a short period of time because we know these things, it's a revolving door. Uh, it, things move very quickly, and very soon there'll be another issue that'll be front and center. But I thought it was something that if you were following the news and if you've read a little bit about this, and I'll post a good article from Politico on the Facebook page uh, that gives a little bit of a background to this in terms of the inner workings. It helps us to understand how this works within political parties and the amount of energy, the amount of strategy that goes into not only selecting people for these positions, but then when, as we have an example here, someone gets out of line in terms of the party messaging and the line of unity that they want to maintain, uh, it's very clear that uh, how, how they act, you know, politically, to address that and to continue to move things forward with the, the set agenda, at least that is in the hands of the leadership of that party. So look at that issue a little bit more, engage with that. I think it's an interesting insight type of issue in political parties, especially in Congress and how they function. And, uh, uh, and I think that, that it shows that in this day and age that there's very little room for disagreement. Uh, It's very much focused on how do you keep things controlled, how do you keep them uh, in line, how do you make sure that everyone is is speaking the same uh, language and the same message along the party uh, focus, at least where the leadership wants to take it. So that's Liz Cheney and her removal from her position as Republican Conference Chair. Uh, She already has a primary challenger for the next election, uh, but uh, I think she'll – be able to hold her own, at least in in addressing that and running for re-election. I'm not sure. It depends on her constituents and how they line up behind her. Part of it, too, depends on where we are at that time, because there's a lot of time between now and the primary elections for the 2022 general elections, and certainly things can change uh, very quickly in the world of politics. So we're going to take another just really short break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about health insurance in Texas and where we stand at the end of the 87th Texas Legislature. We'll be right back. Tea for Texas, tea for tea for Texas for is a Texas-based tea. history podcast from historian tea Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Tea Find a new episode every Thursday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. And for our final segment of the show today, we are going to talk about health insurance in Texas, an issue that is longstanding as a challenge in the state especially when we look at the data and the number of uninsured. Uh, Texas continues to lead the nation and, and at the moment in terms of the number of, of uninsured. Of course, we're a large state with a large population, but also in the percentage of the population of the state that is uninsured. So we are just below 20 percent, around 18.7 uh, percent that are uninsured, that have no uh, health insurance in the state. And uh, the legislature was chided a little bit this past uh, week by Ross Ramsey of the Texas Tribune uh, in wondering why this was ignored. Why do we continue to ignore this challenge as it becomes more costly uh, and more significant in the state, especially in light of the federal resources that have and, and, and will continue to be provided? And of course, that's at the heart of this and why Texas lawmakers have been reluctant Uh, To uh, expand uh, Medicaid in the state, Uh, that is something that's been offered to the state even back as the Obama administration, the first administration when the Affordable Care Act was passed and Texas passed on it then uh, and has continued to do so. Uh, out of concern that Medicaid cost would continue to be a challenge for the state, yeah, it it already is in terms of the budget, uh, but that that seeing that that would only increase the more people who were eligible if the ceilings for Medicaid uh, uh, qualifications were raised, and and of course. Uh, Initially, the focus was the federal government covering the majority of that. But over time, states would pick up more and more of the cost. And, of course, that, that has been an issue all along. It continues to be an issue, even though federal resources have continued. And Texas, to a certain extent, has uh, received some additional support and waivers uh, in terms of its using state resources for this. But it, it, it did not get any attention in this legislative session. And, and now we're, we're faced with the reality, especially post-pandemic here, and as the effects of the pandemic continue, people struggle with health issues related to it. It's still out there. We don't know where, what direction it may go in the near future, if depending on what we see. But insurance is critical uh, to addressing this. And instead, Texas has taken the other approach of saying, well, they can have access to health care if even if they don't have insurance, we'll get resources uh, to do that. But those resources that come from the federal government that help Texas pass those on along to hospitals and, and medical care providers that treat people without insurance, uh, those resources are, are, are very much limited. Um, and so what we're going to see is that the Medicaid issue is going to continue to linger uh, long past this legislative session, as, as uh, Ross Ramsey writes. He said earlier this year, the federal government reneged on a 10-year extension of another source of Medicaid funds known as a 1115 waiver. And Texas uses this to cover some of the cost of uncompensated hospital care. Uninsured people get some of their medical care in hospitals uh, that they that, that have to provide the care even when patients can't pay for it. And the Medicaid money in the waiver helps to reimburse those hospitals. So what's happening now is that this waiver uh, is going to expire in September of 2022. And that is going to leave Texas with a challenge here, uh, especially because the legislative session will not be until January of 2023. Uh, So how will they handle this? How will Texas compensate uh, for the uninsured who seek medical care uh, but do not have Medicaid coverage? Uh, So Texas has been using this waiver and its reimbursement of uncompensated care, Uh, ever since turning back legislative proposals to expand the state's Medicaid coverage. So what we've seen, if we look back over the past decade on health insurance coverage in Texas, uh, we can see that the high point was in 2010 when about 25 percent of Texans did not have health insurance. And that number started to decline in the past decade and dropped below 20 percent Uh, In 2015. Uh, But since that time, it has has stayed steady until recently when it started to go back up. Uh, Of course, another facet of this is that 12.8% of children in the state are uninsured and are not qualified for uh, Medicaid. And so this is an ongoing issue that raises concerns about the quality of life in the state. It raises concerns about access to uh, wellness care. It raises concerns about access to uh, mental health care, uh, which can be very costly and how people actually pay for that if they don't have health insurance. And, and Texas has not been able really to come up with a solution for this. Of course, the fallback is that, well, people in Texas, the, the focus should be on a growing economy, creating more jobs. And if people have jobs, then hopefully those jobs or those companies will be able to provide employee-based uh, health insurance, or someone will have the money to go out then and buy uh, health insurance, uh, catastrophic maybe insurance that deals with the major big issues that come up. Uh, and, and that's been the approach. Uh, because the state is very much concerned, state, state lawmakers are concerned about the long-term impact of Medicaid cost uh, on the state itself. And, of course, the challenges, too, as we saw under the Affordable Care Act, uh, Texas chose not to manage its own uh, insurance exchanges. Uh, those have been managed by the federal government. And of course, the challenge is then of getting people to either enroll in those or to have the resources to, uh, to to buy health insurance. So we really see this as an ongoing challenge that the Affordable Care Act, while it provided some solutions to address some of it, uh, the state was not a willing partner in that. And we're seeing uh, the impact of that long term and seeing it as still a, a, an ongoing challenge. And the, where this may uh, get to the point of a crisis stage is when that waiver expires and you have hospitals that, uh, that are not getting compensated, the state does not have those resources from the federal government to compensate hospitals for uh, providing care to the uninsured, uh, what happens then? What, what do hospitals do? What do medical care facilities do? What does the state do? Uh, Of course, lawmakers will be coming back this fall for a special session. Uh, because of the delay in the U.S. Census and the need to do reapportionment on the maps to determine districts uh, for the U.S. Congress and for the state, Senate, and House of Representatives. Uh, So this could be an issue that comes up then. Uh, Many think that it will not. It'll just be something that will kind of linger and languish uh, now until the next legislative session, uh, and it has some significant impact on the budget. So we will see. It's a very critical issue we'll follow in this state that is directly related to quality of life, citizens of the state, and, of course, economic uh, concerns as well. I want to thank you for joining me today on Politics. Join us right here each week, 12 noon on Sundays on KTRL 90.5 FM. Thank you for being with us. podcast with production from me taylor welch and me carissa cole find more great shows by searching tarleton radio network wherever you get your podcast